Welcome to Story Story Night, where you hear true stories on a perceptive theme recorded live in Boise, Idaho. I'm your host, Jody Eichelberger. In this podcast, three featured storytellers are intermixed with a community story slam. Today's featured stories are from Kim Kincaid, Leanne Garten, and Bobby Gatton. It's time to come to your senses, literally, but also metaphorically. The theme smell inspires the stories, so follow your nose. It's story time. Thank you, Clover Quartet. Uh, now, I understand that uh, Barbershop, the association is the Sweet Adelines, is that? NBHS. Is that, okay. Barbershop and Barbershop Harmony Society. Now, is uh, Sweet Adelines, is that like a, they organize competitions? Yes. I understand this is March Madness. Are you in a bracket then, <laughs> or? Not currently. No, not currently in a bracket. <laughs> oh, okay, all right. Uh, do you want to say what your what your names are? Who's um, in the group, oh, or yeah. <laughs> and um, which which part? Step up to the mic. Okay. Yeah. Hello. Um, so barbershop quartets are made out of Thor. Could you have guessed? Um, we are. This is our lead. She sings most of the melodies. This is Robin. Robin Whitmore. Um, this is yes, yes. Um, this is our tenor. You would know it as a soprano. She is Louise. Um, this is our bass. She holds everything together. <laughs> it is Madison, and I sing all of the haunted middle parts to fill in chords. My name is Julia. The baritone. The, the baritone. baritone. Yeah. <laughs> Thank, Thank you. you. Yeah. I love that you defined what a quartet is. It reminds me, I, 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 I once uh, was asked to be at the Curtis Steiger's show that they do at the Egyptian Theater um, as one of my alter egos. And <laughs> I was up there with Curtis and, and Jody. Uh, Peterson Steigers, and Curtis was going to be in a show that I was involved with, and he was going to sing a duet with me. And Jody then asked, "Well, can I come sing too?" And I said, "Well, do you understand what a duet is?" <laughs> they didn't ask me back. <laughs> I haven't been back. But thank you for being here tonight. Yes, thank you for asking. And you. you know, sometimes we try to think like, how does the music fit in with a the theme smell? Well, the name of the group is Clover. It's also there March. <laughs> there are flowers with clover. Flowers yeah. with clover. And uh, we've got green lights up. And uh, when I chose, I, we did, we've done the five senses. Tonight is the fifth of the five. And when I was choosing the order, I picked smell for March because it was supposed to be spring. <laughs> <laughs> Not, doesn't smell too much like spring yet. No. All right, great. Well, thank you so much for being here tonight. And we do have a team of interpreters with us this evening. Um, those of you who are here early to watch the singing, uh, the music was being interpreted, and I forgot to ask for pronunciations, but I'm going to say Helena Cahill. Is that right? Or is it Cahill? Cahill. Yeah, all right. Second, my instinct was wrong. I, I should have followed my nose. Helena Cahill and Annalise Reynolds. Can you stand just for a second, just so we can acknowledge the two of you? <laughs> and uh, then I, of course, have uh, now the, this wonderful woman here, Lavona Andrew, and she'll be joined by Sierra McIver, helping to interpret the stories, which, yes. 
And which also means that interpretation is two ways. So if you are a storyteller who comes up and shares a story, a Livonia or Sierra will interpret your story. But if you are a member of the deaf community and you want to share a story, we'll do it the other way around and they will voice the story for you so that our hearing audience gets to share in that. So feel free to do that. And the structure of the show, if you're here, are, is anyone here for the first time and ever been to Story Story? Oh, okay. All right, got us reset to do some education here. Uh, so we have three featured storytellers intermixed with a community story slam. And the story slam, it's a five minute story inspired by our theme smell. And anyone can participate in that by signing up uh, over here at the story booth right there with Ben and Susan. And then throughout the show, we'll reach our hand in and draw out a name and then you have a chance to share your story. Sometimes they're the most brilliant stories of the night. And sometimes... Uh, <laughs> want to acknowledge our sponsors tonight. Uh, the Shandro Group, thank you, Shandro Group. Yes. And then we also have a very special group of people that we call our story subscribers. And these are individuals who uh, come to almost every show and they are on a monthly uh, support for Story Strainer. We really appreciate that because um, actually it's kind of filled in like tonight for instance We have our season sponsor, but we don't have a show sponsor And so those story subscribers are really helping to fill that in and if you are not a story subscriber It's right on our website and they'll set you up and then you get tickets to all the shows including our upcoming late night series that's coming up um, In working with the storytellers for tonight uh, one of the things that we do, so anyone can also be a featured storyteller uh, in the future by writing story at storystorynight.org and just um, tell us your idea for a story. And then the way that works is we can do a one-on-one -on -one to help support your story. Then we meet in a peer group that we call the Story Salon about a week before the show, a few days before the show. And one of the things we discovered when we met this time is we kind of asked, well, what is the smell of Boise? That's hard to define. And some may ask if we should define it. <laughs> but I thought it might be fun if you are interested and have an idea of, to express how, what Boise is in smell. Uh, there is a, we have a little yellow vase here, and you can write your answer on a piece of paper. And throughout the show, I might just share a couple of those, uh, the idea of smell in Boise. Um, if you don't want to get up and walk all the way over there, you can also text our story line at 208-917-1970 and just answer with your idea of what does Boise smell like. That's 208-917-1970. And we'll see what we come up with. We had a hard time coming up with something, so maybe one of you has an idea. Uh, that also is the number, if you use it tonight, that is also the number that you can call in or text that you have an idea for a story to be a featured storyteller in the future. So keep that number handy. Sometimes we use it for other things too. Last month, I shared a story for uh, Touch that was about an invitation inside a body of hot water. And I have another story that is about an invitation inside a body of hot water, which is, seems kind of like a troubling pattern, kind of problematic. Um, you know, it was nice, you know, even just a few years ago, 
if you wanted to go to the hot springs up in Idaho City, you could have that idea maybe earlier in the day and then just get online and make a reservation, head up there and soak in the hot water. Uh, not anymore. I made a reservation two months ago for April, uh, which is a little bit crazy. That is actually one of the reasons we like to meet in this room for Story Story Night, too. Um, I came originally, well, not originally, but most recently from New York and was involved with the Moth program there in, in New York City. And often people had to wait in line uh, for over an hour with the hope of getting in. And then once you did get in, there might have been a seat for you. So uh, as I'm getting older, I find that I like being comfortable. And uh, so the, this is one reason we like for all of you to be comfortable in this venue. It also helps that we aren't in New York City. Uh, that makes a difference too. And uh, one of the things that also I think some of us are appreciating about the music tonight from Clover is just uh, how soothing it is after some of you were out in the mud this weekend. And you know, this music is like a salve. <laughs> feels, it feels good. Also, we're warm inside. And that feels good too. For a number of years, I lived in, I was, well, I lived both in New York, but also in Reykjavik, Iceland. And one of, actually, Boise is mentioned in, in outside of Reykjavik at a geothermal power uh, factory uh, on a little plaque. It's the only city that's mentioned in some of their descriptions because we were the first city in the United States that used geothermic water for heat. And Iceland is almost entirely uses geothermic water for power and heat. And so that was kind of fun connection between the two. But uh, they have so many hot geothermic pools and hot tubs all over the country, every community. They may only have 15 people in the community, but they do have a pool and a hot tub. And <laughs> if you're driving through, you can go visit and you might meet somebody. Uh, and it is so lovely. Most of them are outdoors, so you kind of have to go into the locker room and change, and you have to take a shower. They even have a very helpful chart that tells you where to clean. Uh, it's mostly the smelly areas, and there is sometimes a monitor behind a little glass window who watches you as you shower to ensure that you have done what you are supposed to do. And uh, normally, even though you don't have to like make a reservation or anything, uh, the hot tub, there might be a few of them and then the larger swimming pool. But our pattern was to go and, because we were kind of cold coming straight out, so we'd run right into the hot tub and wait there. And then we were meeting friends and so we would meet in the hot tub and then we'd all get, okay, it's time to actually swim. Usually the hot tub was very full and sometimes we called it the dating pool because uh, there would be some shenanigans going on. Uh, it just depended on the night. It often was dark, of course, because during the winter months, there's only a few hours of, of daylight. This particular day that we went, the, the four of us, um, the hot tub was quite empty, and that seemed kind of strange. And there was a boy in there as we approached, and he was very polite and... Uh, invited us, he just kind of looked at us and he said, sit here, sit here. And I was like, oh, well, how nice. A little invitation to go sit in the hot tub. And then what was weird about it, though, is we got into the hot tub and he immediately stood up and left. 
and also looked at us kind of funny, like, okay, you know, which wasn't too unusual with us being foreigners. Uh, then one of our friends who took the longest to change and come out from the dressing room uh, came up to the hot tub and she's like, you know, it was the craziest thing <laughs> in the dressing room just now. Uh, she, they, this little girl took off her swimsuit and it was just like balls of poop rolling across the floor. And uh, she got in the hot tub and she's like, you know, we've like, wow, we've never seen that before. It's a very clean place, you know, scrub the smelly spots. Uh, and after a time, one of my other friends kind of pointed at the water and said, what is that? And sure enough, there was a brown substance that was in the hot tub. And uh, my friend just took her hand and went under it and lifted it up and threw it to the side. And I looked at her aghast. And she's like, what do I care? I'm a mother of two boys. Like, it's not a big deal. And she seemed perfectly happy to remain in the hot tub. <laughs> I wasn't quite so sure. Um, you know, and the Icelandic accent is so fun. Like, one of the phrases that you often hear was like, oh my god, you know, they would start, or okay, was another way to say, oh my god, okay. Um, you know, and, and one thing that never made sense is there was a Viking week, mostly for tourists, Viking week. And the Icelandic people would all say, oh, are you going to Vikingvik? I'm like, I don't understand. Both of the sounds were in that title, v and w, and, you, and they were like, I don't, they didn't know what I was talking about. Well, as you might have guessed, that um, Icelandic boy who was just learning English had this accent, and so what sounded like sit here to me as I translated it, <laughs> And we don't swear in this show, but yes, it was, uh, he was in fact saying, shit here. <laughs> the very simplest English sentence you can come up with, a subject and a verb. Uh, he wasn't that old, so he didn't know, you know, big constructive sentences. Uh, so uh, we did, we, we uh, were shitting right there in the, in the hot tub. Um, and, you know, my friend had gotten rid of the offending substance. We hope it sounds like a lot of it made it back to the dressing room. Uh, and then I was kind of nestled in and enjoying the pool. And, you know, I, my brain is powerful. I'm a creative person. I have a strong imagination. And I know you got rid of the poop. But I smell it now even more than I did before. And then, to my horror, the same friend looked at my neck and started reaching her hand out to just the base of my hairline and started kind of scraping. But I did not stay. I launched out of that pool and dove into one of the other hot tubs to try and wash it off. The, unfortunately, the hot tubs are by scale of heat, and uh, I basically was a lobster when I moved into the, into the next one. But uh, uh, it's hard to relax after you have that experience and have that smell in your 
in your mind. And I'm also a little nervous for the show now because it often happens when I share one of these stories like this at the beginning of the show that suddenly all of our slammer stories <laughs> now involve poop or diapers or something. So challenge yourself, challenge yourself. Fortunately, we are safe in that our featured storytellers tonight, none of their stories involve that particular smell. Not really, anyway, so that's good. So let's go ahead and bring up our featured storytellers in reverse order. And they can come up and sit in any of these chairs that they like. So from the smell of aerosol to the air in a sugar beet field, please welcome Bobby Gatan. Oh, he's way in the back. It'll take him a while to get here. So while he's coming up, the smell of pine in your car, but not from an air freshener hanging from the rearview mirror. Rearview mirror. It's Leanne Garten. <laughs> Welcome. And first up to the mic, she has been a fan of Story Story Night for a very long time, but this is her first time sharing a story. And earlier today, we received a message from her daughter. Caitlin wrote in to say, I live in Washington State and won't be able to attend. Could you give her a shout out from me at the show? This is from Caitlin. I want to wish you luck tonight. I'm cheering you on from Seattle and love you to the moon and back. So we are baking some cookies, but not to sell a house. Please welcome for her first time at the Story Story Night Mike, Kim Kincaid. Thank you. My story is about the longest relationship I have had with a male. And that male has the most amazing sense of smell. His name is Dice. He's a 90-pound black and white Springer Spaniel that was with me for a better part of 15 years. A Little bit about how we acquired Dice. I was going through a divorce, and we had just moved into our new home. Right before the divorce, we had lost our previous black and white Springer, and my kids really wanted a new dog. So we looked in the Statesman, yes, back in the day of print ads, and looked and looked, and there was an ad for a black and white Springer Spaniel for $50, which included the kennel, but it was in Sun Valley. So I called and begged him to hold on to the dog so we could come up and get him. Drove up there. The kids got out. They're playing with the dog. They're all excited. They think he's wonderful. Um, the owner is getting rid of him because he doesn't have time to spend with him, but he's a little worried because Springers are hyper. And I was like, have you met my kids? So suddenly Dice jumps into the back of the car and won't get out. And the kids think, oh. That's a sign, he loves us, he already loves us, he's our dog. Well, that was the first sign that I knew that that dog knew otherwise, it was his nose. He saw that car and those kids as a gold mine. There were chicken nuggets, french fries, candy, anything he could get his mouth on. And he was extremely happy to be with us. Through the years, Dice managed to find tubs of butter in the fridge, loaves of bread, all the candy, 
anything he could find. I eventually had to put child locks on our cupboards and our fridge because he could get into it. Eventually, I was facing empty nest and another divorce. Mind you, I told you I'm not good with relationships, but um, I decided to sell my house and travel. So Dice and I loaded up the car and we landed in Seattle, Washington, downtown Seattle on Capitol Hill. So we had lived there for a while and suddenly I was called back to Idaho for an emergency, a funeral. Uh, I left after work. So I'm driving the eight hour drive back. As I'm going through Pendleton, I have to let him out to go to the bathroom. And at this point, Dice is about 13 years old. He can't move real well, so I have to help him in and out of the car. And I stop, and I'm kind of, it's really dark, and I'm in kind of a sketchy area, so I start to panic, and I pick him up and throw him in the back of the car. At that point, I felt a pop in my back and severe pain down my leg. And I knew something was wrong. When I got back to Washington, I found out I did have to have back surgery. So while I was waiting for back surgery, I was still trying to work, trying to get through life, trying to manage the dog. And um, I don't do well with painkillers or any narcotics. So as a disclaimer, this took place in Washington, where things are medically and recreationally legal. So I messaged my best friend in the apartment complex, Jason, who is a fabulous cook, and I begged him to make me some cookies. So I get home. As I walk into the apartment, you can hear or you can smell the decadent waft of chocolate chip cookies coming from the oven and mixed with a little bit of earthy skunk. It was wonderful. But those cookies got me through that back pain, and I'm telling you, it was a 20 out of 10. So he did a great favor for me. Fast forward a month post-surgery, I get home one evening, and Dice is passed out on my living room floor. And I usually take him out when I get home, so I'm trying to rouse him, trying to wake him up. He doesn't hear. So I can't do that, and wondering what's going on, and suddenly I see little flecks of tinfoil and plastic all over the living room. I follow it to my closet where one of my purses is on the floor and rummaged through. I'm starting to put that picture together, and I'm starting to panic because he is not moving. So I'm doing everything I can to rouse him, wake him up, I'm panicking, trying to do everything, holding a mirror under his nose, making sure he's still breathing. I message both of my children. My youngest messages me and says, you've got to get him outside, he's got to pee, he's got to hydrate, you've got to get it flushed through his system. And I'm like, how? I just had back surgery because of this dog, I can't lift, I can't bend. What do I do, roll him in a suitcase and haul him out? <laughs> By this time, it's Sunday morning. And if anybody knows Sunday morning on Capitol Hill, no one is awake. They don't get up till noon. So none of my friends were going to help me. Then I messaged my daughter, Caitlin. <laughs> and 
she proceeds to send me uh, YouTube music videos from a veterinarian singing, your dog ate weed. <laughs> funny, not funny. So I am seriously panicking. It's going on about 16 hours and he is just, it's probably the happiest he's ever been in his life. He's 13 and he's not in pain any longer. But I think, okay, what got him into this predicament? His nose. So what do I do? We will find something that wakes him up. So I search my cupboards, my fridge, my freezer. I find a frozen pizza. <laughs> Cook the pizza as the greasy cheese pepperoni smell is starting to roll out from the oven. He does start, start to move a little bit. It's finished, I take it out and I hold it under his nose. You see his eyes kind of roll open. His nostrils start to flare, drool coming out of his mouth, and he's starting to move. So I'm getting the aroma right out there, and suddenly he sits up and staggers to his feet, and I back out of the apartment, and he wobbles down the hallway, we get him outside, he starts to perk up, he urinates, we get it out of his system, we walk him around, I take him inside, and we share that pizza because he earned it. <laughs> I want to let you know, the dice was not harmed in any of this. In fact, he went on to live quite a few more years and get into chocolate, ice cream cones, birthday cakes, nothing harmed him. We finally had to put him down at about 15 and a half years old. That's long for a Springer, and a Springer who was riddled with tumors, ate everything in the book, but we had to. And as I'm lying in the veterinarian's office on the floor with him, snuggling him, as they administer the medication, I smell this acrid ammonia odor starting to waft through the room. My arm gets warm, and I realize Dice has just peed all over me. <laughs> so all that work I went through to get him to go pee, he finally did. And I think Dice got the last laugh. Thank you. Thank you, Kim. Uh, do we have anything in our hat over there, or do we have anything in the vase? We don't have anything in the vase, or it's coming. Oh, okay, great. Um, hmm. Now I'm thinking about brownies. <laughs> oh, we've got this and this and this. I cleaned you out. All right, very good. You can put your hat back on. All right, well, let's check in on the smell of Boise. Let's see what we, I haven't read these yet, so ooh. Uh, sage, the smell of the foothills. Mmm, good one. The Boise River on an August night, dry and sweet, full of perfume of cottonwoods. Yeah, oh, that's interesting because uh, 
when I was in Iceland around this time of year, uh, coming out of the hot tub and after having my shower and being fully cleansed, I smelled something in the air that I was like, what is that? And it suddenly reminded me of growing up in Boise. And it was the smell in the air in Iceland. And I was just like, I, don't, I haven't smelled this in such a long time. I don't even know what it is. But it's bringing me back. And it was the cottonwoods are one of the fastest growing trees. And they planted some cottonwoods and that smell of the cottonwoods. We've also got a few that have come in on the story, story, story line, 208-917-1970. Let's check here. Boise smells of catalpa blossoms in the spring. Yeah. Oh, those are amazing. And now I'm talking about trees. The black locust blossoms, it smells like an artificial scent being manufactured by Disney. <laughs> it is so sweet. One more. Boise smells like mountain water spilling over tree roots. Be wow, you guys are poetic tonight. <laughs> That's lovely. See, it was the soothing music as I'll put us into this little spirit. All right, well, this is not gonna be much of a mystery for the person who put their name in the hat if they put their own name in the hat uh, because it's the only one that was in there. So at any time, please do go over and put your name in. And But we are going to hear now and I should say, these are five-minute stories for family audiences, uh, so keep that in mind. We say PG-13. If you start to go long on your story, I'm going to come closer and closer to you until I can sniff you. <laughs> that made me extremely uncomfortable just to say that. So imagine how uncomfortable it will be if I have to do it. All right, let's have Elise... Vicker. <laughs> Elise, someone who goes by Elise. Oh, here she is. She took, uh, she took some time off. Um, she's been sharing senses with us all season. Uh, and that's another thing I forgot to mention, is if you have shared uh, in the last month, uh, take a break and give other people a chance. But you did not share for touch. You, we didn't get to hear your touch story. Yeah, but you have a smell story tonight, huh? Very good. All right, ladies and gentlemen, our veteran slammer, Elise. Okay, so, um, hi, my name is Elise, and um, last time I shared, I was 10. I am now 11, so happy about that. Okay, so here's the story. So me and my mom went to the grocery store. We were just getting our groceries, like, for my school lunches, whatnot. But we were just going, heading to checkout, and I see a bunch of like things of soap and I'm like, oh my gosh, I wanna go over there and smell it. So we spend like two or three minutes just smelling all the soaps. There's like, there's like 200 different flavors. Okay, anyways, I can't, we're smelling them and then we're finally just heading to checkout. I'm like, wait, 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 wait. Like I just felt like I couldn't smell anything anymore. So I went over and I just picked up an orange from like where the produce was and I smelled it and I didn't smell anything so I was like okay this is weird so I picked up like an apple and I'm like okay okay that doesn't smell like it okay I'm worried now so I saw that they had like I don't know if many of you have heard of this but it's a type of fruit and it's like spiky and it's supposed to be it's supposed to smell really bad and I knew what it smelled like at the time and it was it smelled horrible even just the rind of it so I I go down, I duck my head down, and I smell it. Doesn't smell like anything. So I was like, okay, I don't know what happened, but 
I can't smell anything. So we check out um, in the car. I'm like, you know what? It will probably come back to me in like 10 minutes. Like maybe that just like overloaded my nose. Like I'll be fine. Like a couple hours passed by. I still can't smell anything. I'm like, um, people, this is, this is not good. So I ended up just taking my shoe off and smelling it. <laughs> didn't smell like anything at all. I didn't smell anything. And I'm like, okay, I don't know how to deal with this. So eventually I ended up taking a COVID test. I did not have COVID, so it was not that. One thing checked off the list. So we get to like the next day and I still can't smell anything. And I've made sure of that. Like I cannot smell anything. So I'm like, okay, okay. Am I ever gonna get my smell back? I did. <laughs> um, so it turns out that after a little bit of research, when it finally came back to me, just sometimes when you smell a lot of stuff, it just kind of overloads your nose and it sometimes happens to certain people where they can't smell for a little bit of time. And apparently I'm one of those people and it just happened to me for a really long time and I didn't know that and I was really worried. But, and I'm fine and I thought I was dying when I couldn't smell anything. <laughs> I'm currently not dead, but. unit will oh, sign right. the release form, right? What what store do your, your family shop at, Elise, for groceries? Where do you go for groceries? Oh, thank goodness. <laughs> you shopped in Portland because that store is riddled with germs. Yeah. yeah. The durian, especially, I guess. Is that the fruit that you... The durian? Yeah. It is a stinky one. Yeah. Yeah, there once was a lot of calls in New York about a mysterious smell that everyone was like, and it turned out it was a bunch of durian fruit in New Jersey. <laughs> At least that's what they said. <laughs> Thank you, Elise. <laughs> well, I do smell some fear in the air. And you know, one of the things we've learned is that public speaking is the number one fear of Americans, which is astonishing to me that it beats drowning and fire and other things, but public speaking. So all of these storytellers that are coming up here tonight, uh, with the exception of Elise, who has no fear whatsoever, uh, are being very brave. And we so appreciate that bravery, but it's also because our audience is so supportive and welcoming. Um, and really uh, wants our storytellers to succeed, which makes this event very special, and we appreciate that. But we have good storytellers, and we also have good listeners. Uh, our next featured storyteller, it's her first time, I think, at Story Story Night, and certainly her first time at the Story Story Night microphone. Please welcome Leanne Garten. So the problem with thinking about everybody naked is that I'm a massage therapist. <laughs> so my story, um, it, 
I, I grew up in eastern Idaho in the mountains uh, on a ranch, and uh, mostly my first smells involved pine. And we used pine to build things, and you'd cut the wood. It was, it was brought in from the lumber yard, or the lumber mill, and, uh, and then planed down, and you know, we built windows and we didn't just come and set the window in the space. It was actually built there by carpenters and it took a while. And the wood was brought in. We cut the wood up with a big saw and so always the, the smell of pine was around. We had poles that we had to cut up, the fence posts, and so it was just always a smell. I remember that. There were other smells on the ranch, too. There was uh, manure and uh, the willows and the grass and, and uh, just the smell of the animals. But when you're in the, in, when you're in the country, the, the smells kind of move out, you know? And even the manure was gathered up and then in the, in the springtime it was taken out and put on the field. So. The smells kind of moved around for seasons and kind of got an organic feeling about the whole thing. And it's, it's not like that in the city. You know, you have garbage and all the things are brought into the city and then they have to be taken out. And there's a smell of waste. There's also the smell of bakeries and things like that. But it's different in the city, in the country. And when you're in the country, because of all the space, you have to learn to measure. And measuring is really important. You, in, in the city, you have blocks, and you have ceilings, and you have walls, and you have fences, and you have lanes for traffic, and you have all these things that you learn to behave around. You have to, because there's people nearby. So it's not like that in the country. You know, uh, you have long roads. They go out for a long, you have streams that move through and big fields. It, things, if you go out in the morning, you have to know that you can't just go on until the end of your energy. You have to figure out, you have to come back home because you'll be stuck out there. So that kind of thing was what I grew up with. But I wound up in St. Louis uh, when I was in my 20s. I was a single mom, and I had a friend named Leslie. And Leslie was a city girl. She'd grown up with, you know, uh, supervised adventures, trips to the museum, and all these wonderful things that a city girl would grow up with and she, everything was measured out for her. So even though we both spoke English, uh, we didn't communicate really well on a lot of things. Um, and, uh, and, and measuring was one of them. So one day in the winter, December, she found out about uh, an over, um, a harvested tree farm, so. And she wanted a tree that her dad could be proud of. Yeah, 
so she talked to me, and I was the one with the car, so she had motivation to talk me into doing this. So the two of us, I, we packed up her kids. I packed up my two, and she packed her one, and we got in the car. And I, I got a little lunch, uh, hot dogs and, you know, the cheese stuff that you put, that you feed kids, you know, kid food. So we got in the car and started driving off. Well, the first thing I noticed it's this little morning jaunt into the country to pick up a couple of trees. Um, we're about a quarter of the way out of, uh, we're about a quarter of the way across Missouri before we're even out of St. Louis, because it sort of fans out. And we were over by the arch, so you know we had a quarter of the way out of the out of um, Missouri, <clears throat> and then we had to go out further in the country to get the tree. We had to find the farm, and so we're out there. Well, it's kind of like lunchtime. Um, this is more than a morning jaunt. So I, I give the kids the food, because what do you do? You feed the kids, and hope that we can get back before we need to feed the kids again. <laughs> and, um, and I head off. Now, I've brought a coping saw with me. This is one of those little C-shaped things with a narrow blade and a handle on the bottom. Well, the reason I brought that was because I know when you go to the tree lot, you can bring home a tree that's too big for your house. And I'd looked at all the little tree stumps, and you know, two inches was about as big as you'd want. So a coping saw, you know, it's one of those saws you give the kids so they won't do too much damage. And so I figured, okay, I can cut this tree down and it'll be about the right size with a coping saw. So my daughter and I went out a ways from the car and it, it, this is a farm that, uh, the tree farm has been harvested, so it was a little ways out to find the tree. We found the tree and it was a little taller than me, which was a good sign. And we took the coping saw and we cut the tree down and we, hauled it back the car, a reasonable distance to the car, and expected, I, I expected Leslie to do something similar. Well, that wasn't what happened. We got back to the car and there was no Leslie. I shouted, and shouting's another measurement you do in the country. You know, when you can't hear back, you know you're kind of getting in trouble. No answer. So, there's no Leslie and there's no answer, and I'm starting to panic a little bit because we have to get back and feed the kids. So uh, Leslie finally shows up, and she's gone off to uh, the farmhouse, which I can see is about a quarter of a mile away. And um, she's come back, uh, and the farmer's with her. And the farmer looks at the tree and decides he needs a chainsaw. <laughs> now, I'm starting to really kind of panic, because I gotta get the kids back and have supper. And um, so the farmer goes off with his son. So this is the two boys that she's gone off with and she can't cut the tree down. The farmer comes back with his son <clears throat> and a chainsaw and a front end loader. <laughs> <laughs> and 
the front end loader is kind of bouncing through. I mean, they've had to go through this field to get there, and and it's all bumpy, and you know the trees have been taken out. And uh, anyway, it comes back, and I'm trying to explain to Leslie that she probably should cut that tree someplace with a coping saw, um, but it's not. It's not registering with her because she wants a tree her dad will be proud of. Um, and she seems to have found it. So um, <laughs> there we are. Uh, and the farmer is picking this tree up with the front end loader. And it's hanging out both ends. And he drives it over to my car, lifts it up, and sets it on top. And then he takes rope, which I think he brought with him too, and he ties it to the bumper, which you could do back then because you had bumpers and, uh, that you could tie things to. And so I've got this big tree on top of my car, and I'm a little worried about the roof. I'm, I'm very worried about the roof. And my tree is kind of tossed up on top and tied on, and it looks like a little gosling that's on top of Mother Goose's wing. <laughs> And I have to get us home. So it's a long way back home. And uh, I've checked the gas tank. I, I'm not real sure we can even get to the gas tank if we run out of gas. Because at this point, this isn't one of those trees that they've tied up and bundled. You know, This is just a tree that's been set on my. And so it's hanging down over the, the windows. I have no vision, uh, no, you know, it's a little window out the front and, and it's dark in the back and, you know, we can smell the pine, it's pretty wonderful and I don't remember home at all back at that point, but I'm panicking. So um, it's dark in the car and the kids, there's no seatbelts back then. So the kids are in the back of the car rattling around and I'm driving down the street trying to explain to Leslie that this is really difficult and she's trying to explain to me that I'm really being unreasonable because she's been in supervised adventures and she thinks I'm giving her one. <laughs> well, we drive down the highway and we get, we, we get to St. Louis and we drive through the icy streets just one, I, I was really worried that the police would stop us because we don't have any vision at all. You know, you're supposed to be able to see out of all the windows. And even back then, they thought you should see out of all the windows. <laughs> um, so, we, we, <laughs> but I did figure out, Leslie was the one that was better at talking than I was. So if the police stopped us, it was her job. That was it. So we get back to St. Louis, and I drive directly to her parents' house because I, I want rid of her. And I want rid of that tree, too, because I need to go to the gas station. And um, who knows what would happen with a pine tree on your car in a gas station. So I, um, I pull up to the house, and her dad comes out calls a neighbor. Somehow they roll it off the t my roof and put my little tree back on it, and we drive home. Well, we get home and we kind of eat everything in the refrigerator because we're really hungry. We've been out in the, in the cold air and active, and it, it's, 
you know, we're hungry. So we eat, and, uh, and when we get done, uh, we bring the tree in, and we set it up in the house. And the tree bends over about a foot and a half uh, on the ceiling. So this tree is way too tall. <laughs> and uh, we take the coping saw and cut the tree again up the root. And the smell of pine fills the house. And we are warm, and we have full bellies. And the scent of pine. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Leanne. Uh, I rented a car when I lived in New York uh, to go out to the country, well, my people's country, which is Cape Cod. Um, and it took us, like you said, like it took you a long time to get out of, out of St. Louis. Uh, it took us like two and a half, three hours to get out of the city. And we'd rented a car, we got the the guidance system at that time, you still had to have the thing that suction cups. Um, although we didn't understand where it was supposed to go, and so we were holding it for a long time because we couldn't get to stick to the dash, and then we were like, oh, the window. Also, satellite, apparently, it doesn't work under the overpasses, so we wouldn't get a signal, and we'd have to hold it out the window and try to figure that out. Well, after about two and a half hours, um, I look, we're on this little two-lane road kind of winding around through some trees and houses and stuff, and I look down and I see these cars just going And I said, you know, is there a settings thing on that guidance gizmo? And it turns out it doesn't reset, and someone had selected no toll roads, and that added no toll roads, no tunnels. <laughs> no, I mean, we were driving through people's driveways. It was... <laughs> Yeah, there was something. But we finally did make it to the sea and the smell of the water. Oh, smell, let's check. Whoop, I didn't bring my phone. Well, we'll check those. Uh, we've got some more smells of Boise I'll share with you uh, after the break. Hey, uh, Clover, do you have some, some doot, doot, doots you could do underneath my, uh, my uh, sponsor message? I usually ask people if they have something kind of insurance-related. <laughs> All right, well, it's... That's the nice thing about doot doot doos. You can really interpret them any way you want, right? All right, we'll do this together. This is a message from our sponsor. The Chandro Group. <laughs> they know there's a difference between offering your employees insurance and benefits. From our first conversation to day-to-day -day benefits management, we use data-driven and culture-focused methods for designing your benefits portfolio. We know no other program in a business can impact employees' financial, emotion, and physical well-being more than employee benefits. The Chandro Group. I mean... The price of sponsorship isn't high enough, I don't think. <laughs> All right, we, are, yeah, we have some time to bake some cookies, so about 10 minutes to refresh your drinks, use the restrooms, and we'll come back for more stories right here in about 10 minutes. Thank you so much.
The Clover Quartet. We're going to have a featured song from them in just a moment as we reconvene for our second act. If I can have our featured storytellers make your way back to the stage and have your, have your seats again, Kim and Leanne and Bobby. Uh, let's check in for our, our digital smells here. Uh, digital smells. <clears throat> I went to the, I can't remember what it's called, DMX or something at the cinema where you sit in the seat that moves around and it's supposed to be smells and wind and sprays you with water. Uh, the one thing they haven't gotten right is the smell because there was a preview with a couple drinking coffee and you hear this and you're like, okay, that's supposed to be the coffee and it's just like this real chemical kind of smell and then the forest and then sometimes during the film you'd be watching a scene with just two people talking and you'd hear the and be like, what's that supposed to be? <clears throat> anyway, uh, Boise smells like brown grass, wet earth, and dusty sage. Smells like a barnyard. <laughs> the ducks roost in my neighbor's yard, and now Boise smells like a barn. Boise smells of cold, cold plums in the evening. Well, mm. oh, that sounds delicious. Uh, we're going to have one featured song, and this is uh, a song that is, I guess, maybe is this where you take your name from, from this song? Or you found the song because you had the name? Oh, all right. So they named themselves Clover Quartet, and then they found a song that's called Clover. Here they are. Sunshine. 
second is rain, and the third is the roses that grow in the lane. Oh, there's no need explaining the one remaining is somebody I adore. For I'm looking over a four-leaf clover that I overlooked before once more. This lovely little clover that makes me smile is a shamrock. I'll soon be walking down the aisle for this one. And <clears throat> all right, and someone's going to be lucky right now because we're going to draw a slammer from our hat. And that lucky person will get to come up and share their smell story in the key of. Oh. <laughs> Getting prepped. All right. Oh, and we have some of these. Okay. Oop. And some of this. Thank you, Ben. Ben was a featured storyteller at Story Story Night, and actually so is Susan, so the, you can ask some questions when you're over at the booth. Do one of these. Hmm. Oh, Boise smells like monster trucks. <laughs> Where did that come from? The organic, fresh smell after it rains, yes. So many scents in the summer. Downtown Boise beckoning us to our restaurants. Mmm, delicious. All right, and then now the stage is about to smell like Becky Walker. <laughs> <laughs> Becky, come on up. supporter of Story Story. Um, smell really speaks to me. Um, I've lost a lot of people in my life in the last 10 years, and I didn't know the importance of smell until I lost my partner four years ago. When you watch a TV show or a movie, when someone dies, you usually see someone grab clothing and they smell it. I never noticed that until my partner passed away. He passed unexpectedly, and when his teenage sons showed up at the house, they said, what would you like, Becky? What's most important to you? And I said, the shirt I bought him in Stanley this summer. I don't know why. It was important to me. And so I took it home, and it became my lifeline for the next couple of years. I could smell him. I could feel him. I didn't realize the importance of smell. And to this day, I keep his body wash by my bed. I don't necessarily smell it all the time. And as I've, through the years, gone through things and gotten rid of things of like, from when my dad passed away, things I didn't need to hold on to anymore, I'm like, I can let that go. 
it's okay. It wasn't important to my dad, it's not important to me. It's okay to let it go. Things from my brother dying, it's okay to let it go. Grandparents, what was important to my grandma and my grandfather are not necessarily important to me. I've let them go. But when that person that is the closest to you and you lose that sense of smell, that triggers you. You miss that smell. You want that smell. You need that smell. Time doesn't matter. Distance doesn't matter. That sense of smell is important. And so even though I still wear that t-shirt so many times to bed, I travel with it. I hold it close to it. I love it. The smell is gone, but I can still take his body wash and open it and smell it. I don't very often, but it's still important because it brings back memories. Smell, taste, touch, all those things that we hold close, those matter and those bring back those people that we long for and that we miss. We're human and we need those connections. So thank you for being here because for me, my community is so much important to me. The, the, the sights I see, the people I see, I look out and I see so many familiar faces and I'm so glad to be here. So thank you so much for being here. Thank you. Thank you, Becky. That's, you know, I think that's an interesting thing about smell in particular because like sight and even touch, it feels like your, your brain is more involved. Like when you look at an old letter or looking at an article of clothing, it's like a thinking thing. But I feel like the, the smell that Becky described, it like brings the core of a memory and the core of a person that we've lost, you know, and that's not the thought of them. It's almost like an essence, and that's really wonderful. Um, our next featured storyteller is a person that I just got to meet the other day, and but it's a name that I've known for a long time, and if you don't know already, I'll tell you more about it after he speaks, because I, I think you know him too. Uh, first time at Story Story Night, and at our mic, please welcome Bobby Gatan. <laughs> Hello. Um, this week is uh, National Farm Workers Awareness Week, and just wanted to dedicate this to all the farm workers that have uh, that are, that work and pick our food that we eat. Um, yeah. So <clears throat> usually in spring, during spring break, sometimes I. I remember when I was a kid, when I was young, uh, growing up as a migrant, seasonal migrant farm worker. And I remember, because I share that with my kids, and um, I remember uh, growing up um, dreaming that one day um, we would, my family would settle and just stay in one place. And I never imagined I would end up here in Meridian, um, Idaho. But uh, I want to share with you, my name is Bobby, I want to share with you um, a little bit of that history, a little bit of my story growing up as a migrant. Um, and so it involves moving a lot. It, we grew up uh, moving. Uh, we, we lived in 33 different homes growing up that I remember. 
Um, I attended three different schools in a school year, um, spring and the fall, and then later in the, in the fall. Uh, we traveled uh, between uh, Mich uh, Texas, Michigan, and Idaho in a year. And so my story begins, uh, I'll begin my story in, Idaho, in Texas uh, during this time of year. Um, we are waiting for the call. We're waiting for the farmer to give us a call that the crops that the uh, asparagus is ready in Michigan. And so we're anticipating that. And before that, we're enjoying our final days in Texas uh, with our families and our friends. Uh, we're, we go to the beach, uh, South Piedra Island. Uh, this is uh, South Texas in Alamo. Um, the, you know, the, the smell of uh, carne asadas uh, in our neighborhood, uh, the, the smell of uh, you know the beach when we when we'd go to the beach and so the the it, it was like we were winter texans what they call right we'd spend our winters in texas and we would go up north to work in the fields and so when we do get the call um from that farmer uh, around this time um i'm going to share with you uh the smells that i remember growing up and so it in the springtime my mom would check us out of school in texas and we would hit the road for three days to Michigan. On the way up there, we would uh, stop by at different uh, migrant resources that my mother always knew about. And so we would stop in Arkansas, we would stop in Illinois, and then we would arrive three days later in Michigan. Uh, in Michigan, it was uh, where we go and pick asparagus, and we lived in uh, Hart, Michigan, Shelby, Michigan, Ludington, Michigan. This is all kind of Lake Michigan, the west side of Michigan. And we spend, uh, we, when we'd arrive, my mother would check us into, uh, we would enroll us in schools. That was the first thing she would do, um, enroll all my sisters uh, and my brother. Uh, it was four sisters and my oldest brother. And when we got there, uh, we went straight to the farm. We lived in uh, different labor camps, different trailer uh, trailer parks, different old army barracks. We slept on, in our in our van if we needed to. We crashed with other family, other migrant families. Um, and so, during um, and I'm and I'm sharing you with you a typical year, uh, a typical year what it would uh, as a teenage uh, boy growing up as a migrant. So. Um, I'm 13 years old. It was my first year uh, that I actually start working, that I am allowed to work. And so my mother uh, would, um, uh, would work during the day. And so when I got out of school, uh, most of our homes were usually nearby these uh, fields. Uh, and so we would, when I'd get home, my mother would go home. I would take her place, and I would finish off these picking these asparagus. The thing about asparagus, uh, as I remember, I never liked the, the smell of asparagus. Um, especially when you pick asparagus, it gets really juicy and, and the smell of it uh, in your rubber gloves, because uh, we have to wear these rubber gloves. And so when you pick asparagus, you're, uh, in Michigan at least, uh, they have these, what they call uh, riders, or low riders, what we call. And so we'd sit, on them, and there are these wings, in the, and there's this motor in the center, and on these wings, you'd sit and you'd pick, and the, the machine would, would take you along these rolls, and you'd pick asparagus every day, practically every day, because it, it, it would rain, and it would get sunny, and these little patches of, of, uh, 
of asparagus would grow. And so we'd have to pick them uh, at pretty much, pretty much daily. And so um, I learned to appreciate asparagus. I, I love asparagus now. Um, and so uh, after schools, or in night schools, there's migrant programs for night kid, for migrant kids like us. Uh, at, at all times of the day, we would be picking these fields. And so I remember that. And around this time of year, uh, April is when we start the harvest. Uh, and in Michigan, we balance uh, between school and work. And um, I, I grew up into this. Um, lifestyle my my family my parents had been doing this my grandparents had been doing this they've been going up north from texas since i since i was born and since i could remember and so in april uh we'd finished the asparagus april may uh and in, we're still in michigan and in 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 around that time we would start the cucumbers and so my family would go and pick cucumbers. Cucumbers were, they, they you know, these, these fields smelled, um, you know, they smelled fresh in the mornings. They, when they would get hot, it, it gets a little humid and, and you could kind of smell the, the, uh, the aroma of some of these cucumber uh, plants. Um, and so, but they smell so good when you crack a really crispy one and you're out in the kind of middle of nowhere and you take a bite out of it and uh, it's so juicy and um <clears throat> and so we we would pick those by by kneeling down we'd have buckets we'd we would fill the buckets up and uh once we did we'd go empty them into a bigger container and this would again uh we'd pick cucumbers maybe the same field maybe maybe three maybe Every other day, uh, it doesn't grow as fast as asparagus, but we we pick it pretty pick it pretty often. And so, um, let's see, we're in we're in May, and so my family's uh, we we've checked out of school. We're in summer school. My mom always made sure that we were enrolled in schools. Um, this my mother always dreamed that uh, if if she kept her kids in school, because statistically migrant kids were dropping out during those those years. And so she made sure that whatever whatever it took is to to enroll us in school and keep us in school because she knew that if we graduated, that would lead to other opportunities. And we were that first generation that um, that went on to 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 do graduate as a family. But before we get there, um, we are now moving to Idaho in the summertime, and so we would pack our stuff, say goodbye to our friends. If you met new friends, you'd say bye to many. I met so many friends growing up uh, because of that. And, um, and, that, and that was and something I would always cherish and remember. And, and migrant families along the way, um, and just other, other uh, people that would help us. Um, and another three days on the road, uh, headed west, uh, this time in, kind of in the summertime, really hot. All of us, uh, so sometimes when you meet other families at these labor camps, we would tell them, cause, you know, that they would ask, well, where are you guys headed next? And we'd, we'd say, we're going to Idaho. And so, sometimes some families would tag along, and um, sometimes we would tag along with other families, depending where the crop was. And, and, and that was kind of the, the lifestyle of a migrant uh, growing up. And when, we arri when we'd arrived in, in Idaho, 
we've been coming to Idaho since uh, the 60s. My grandparents started coming to Idaho. Uh, my, my mother uh, kept coming to Idaho in the 70s with her family. Uh, my parents met in Idaho uh, in the fields uh, growing up, and so they had all their children here. Um, and so, so to me, between Texas and Idaho, it was very, you know, what I considered home. And so in Texas, my, fat, my, my cousins and grandpa, my grandparents and, and every, all my Mexican family, up here we really didn't know anybody, but it just felt, it felt home um, because we've been coming here since I could remember. And so we'd arrive usually in Glens Ferry. Uh, when I was born, I actually was born in the Sailor Creek area uh, up in the kind of this uh, plateau or this hill up near Glens Ferry. Uh, there's a labor camp up there. We, we were all born up there. And we kind of made our way back down to Glens Ferry. As I got older, we, we, we were living at the Hammett labor camp. Uh, and then we ended up in Michigan, at Michigan, and Mountain Home is where we ended up buying a house. Um, and so we stayed there. Uh, Finally, uh, in 1997, and we we stopped migrating as a family. But here in Michigan, uh, here in here in Idaho, we 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 would work in the sugar beet fields, and so in the sugar beet fields, um, we would we'd clean the fields from the weeds that were growing. So the farmers would uh, get these families to go in and clean these fields for them um, by by using a hole, and so. Uh, at times, these labor camps were filled with families that would go to these fields and and clean them fields. And we're talking like, um, you know, up to a hundred people lined up ready to go and work. And I, you know, there's days I remember it smelling uh, like fertilizer, like pesticides. Uh, you would see planes nearby uh, going. Uh, spraying these fields and, and 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 it would remain and obviously on, on these on the sugar beets but when it would rain or when it would be wet it would it would create this um this smell of chemical and it would be on your clothes and it would dry out my mother would always make sure that uh she'd she'd wash those separate she'd wash them often uh our clothes because it, it carried these pesticides on our clothes. And so I remember the smell of those, uh, you know, um, working in these sugar beets. And the, the smell of sugar beets wasn't, if you, if you ever sliced a sugar beet, I mean, it, it, you, you know, it's a sugar plant. And so it, 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 if you tasted one, it tasted very sweet. Uh, it, it wouldn't taste as sweet as a strawberry that I would pick, um, but it, it would uh, definitely be a definitely a sweet uh, sweet uh, plant. And so uh, that was my summertime. Uh, and so when we'd go back to school in the fall, and I get asked, "What did you do? Did you go on vacation?" Uh, I would say yes. Uh, I would, because <laughs> my vacation was uh, moving and, tra and 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 traveling a lot and. And so we didn't get enrolled in school in the fall. And we'd, at that time, the potato harvest kicked off. And so the potatoes, the smell of potato, I love the, the smell of potatoes, uh, potato farms and the potato cellars. If you've ever been to a potato cellar, 
it's to me personally it's one of the 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 sweetest most natural smells because it you're, you're you're smelling a lot of earth and dirt and you're smelling all the fresh uh, kind of dirt that just got uh, rolled over rolled from the uh harv potato harvest and so i would just take in the the smell of the it was so it, so, it smells so good that i felt like i would want to like taste it you ever had that like <clears throat> but it's just the smell of just this cool earth and uh, and dirt, and um, and I would spend my weekends working with my dad while going to school in the weekdays, and that was that was my fall uh, here in Idaho, and working in the labor camps. I'm 13. I'm 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 we're, we're being checked out of school again. Uh, all our friends. We I I was never able to play sports because we were always moving and so I would I would I would envy the you know the ballers and the players because they they were allowed to to play and I wasn't because I had to to move so coaches and teachers and uh, other community leaders were were never really invested in the migrant families because they knew that why spend my time with somebody that wasn't going to be around that long and and so they so I got that a lot growing up, a lot of um, being pushed aside or not being invested on. And, and so my mother always knew that, and so she made sure that she always um, addressed that, whether to the principals and the teachers, but she made sure that our education was not a compromise, and, um, and it worked, it worked well, and we continued uh, our schooling. Um, all of us graduated. I, by that time, we're heading back home. Um, well, at that time, at that time, I considered Texas my home, and so in the in the in the fall, we we'd arrive to Alamo, Texas. We'd be greeted by my grandparents. Uh, the smell of Southern Texas, I'd say, is uh, <clears throat> you know, it's a very. I'd say it's kind of a little tropical. Uh, there's a lot of palm trees, and uh, you could kind of smell a lot of the. You know, it's a border town, so you're going to smell a lot of, uh, you know, it's, it's a very lively place. So, you, you know, a lot of foods and um, a lot of different uh, kind of, because it's hot, so you smell a lot of kind of that kind of humidity smell. Um, and so in Texas is where I fell in love with graffiti. And so uh, growing up, I would see other graffiti artists and... I'd admire what I was seeing on these walls, and I'd want to know more, and I'd ask, and uh, I met some of my f friends to this day, and they introduced me to to graffiti, and graffiti didn't mean, it didn't mean you went out vandalizing, it just meant that you, it's a whole culture in itself, and so uh, there's letters, there's drawings, there's characters, there's colors, there's spray cans, the smell of spray cans. Um, you know, it, it it gets you high if you're smelling it. You know, uh, directly off a can is gonna get you high. You're not. You don't want to do that. I don't. I didn't do that. Um, but you know, it, it's a, it's a very heavy smell. It's a it's a paint smell. And um, you know, as an artist, I use a, a a mask so that I'm not taking in these chemicals. But um, but as a kid, yeah, it, you know, it's it's looked at as a vandal. Vandal um, culture. Um, I was always my my parents were very supportive, so they gave me a, a shack in the back so that me and my friends could practice after schools. And so we 
we'd do that. We'd hang out and it kept me out of trouble. Uh, Texas at the time was very uh, caught up in, you know, in the 90s, it was very gang heavy. And um, I'd say between moving and working in the fields and, and falling in love with graffiti and art, um, th those are what kept me out of trouble, those what kept me out of a lot of that gang culture that I could have easily gone. Or, um, and then my mother always keeping us enrolled in school is what really allowed us to, to finish off that dream that she had. And so we went off and, and, and graduated, went on to school. I'm a, I'm a full-time artist and, you know, I think, I think for me, if, when I share my story is like if, if a migrant kid in the 90s statistically uh, was not supposed to be here, um, could do it. I, I think, I think a, a lot of us could, um, could go a long way if you, if you stick with that dream and you uh, educate ourselves. Uh, and we have that family support, I think we can, um, we can do a lot of things. So I uh, appreciate your, your time. Uh, there's so many stories that I could share growing up, but that, that was my typical year as a migrant. Um, and it, w it went on for, till 1997. And um, to this day, I tell my kids, I remind them, um, you know what it was like and they love hearing that um this is that time of year where they're usually in spring break and not doing much and i'm usually telling them the stories that that they don't want to hear so um but thank you Thank you, Bobby. So his latest work actually just went up this past weekend during Tree Fort over on the old bus depot. So you can walk by and see that. And if you have been in Boise for some time, uh, one of them that is particularly iconic, I think, and I've forgotten the exact location, I think it's called Groovin. And this kid sitting with his with his guitar. Uh, that was supposed to be temporary. I believe it was supposed to be temporary, but it's still there today. How long has it been there now? Like, Eight, six, four, since 2014. Since 2014, okay. Yeah, that's cool. And speaking of traveling families, maybe Leanne, we should just point out this beautiful, uh, do you call it a jacket or a? So this was created through an organization called Artisans for Hope, which is a cool organization to look at and supports refugee families, is that right? Yeah, refugee families and um, teaching new trades and sewing and knitting and creating beautiful things like that. Yeah. Oh, gosh, so much. Boise smells of expat Portlanders. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Time to pick on Oregon a little bit. Okay. I lived in Portland, uh-oh. Tater tots and ketchup in the grade school cafeteria. Wow, that is a smell. Uh, the addition of the grade school cafeteria adds a certain seasoning there. Honestly, I think Boise smells like just pure goodness. 
Ah. Wow. One more here. Oh, this is uh, going to take a little while. I am from St. Louis, Minnesota. The trips I make to visit Boise always have a distinctive smell. Poop. Every time. I have baby twin granddaughters that I come to visit in Boise. Lots and lots of poop. <laughs> yeah, that goes with that. Uh, and this color tonight uh, initially was just like, okay, we have clover, it's March, we had St. Patrick's Day, but now it's become uh, the color of weed, uh, <laughs> the color of pine, the color of grass, the color of cucumbers and asparagus and pesticide. Yeah. Beautiful. Let's get a slammer up here again for some more smell stories. Oh, we have a contender in the front row, huh? Well, we'll see. We'll see. I scared everybody with my, I'll come up and sniff you. Everyone's been way under five minutes, so nobody's wanted that. All right. Here we go. All right. How about, oh, this is one of our story subscribers. Let's have a story from Jean Cardenio. Jean. Hi, everybody. What do you call a nose without a body? Nobody knows. <laughs> no, I actually do have a story. Um, <laughs> so when I was very young, oh, hi Tara. Um, I did, I don't know what it was this gathering, but I was at some kind of event where they took us out and, they, and it was not my class. I know there were like different ages of people and I was just little, and they took us out, and they had us smell things. They were like, oh, let's smell the dirt. Okay, let's smell the pine needles. Let's smell the flowers. And what I realized was, I don't know what they mean. Like, I don't know what smelling is. And uh, I just figured, okay, maybe it's something I'll learn next year in school, <laughs> how to smell. And then, um, and then I realized, or I remember, my mom was baking something, and my brother, my little brother, my younger brother and I were huddled over the mixer. And my little brother said, that smells good. And I thought, what? How does he know how to smell? And I don't. Um, so that's when I realized that I didn't have a sense of smell. And um, I don't know, I was like, a, I was quite a shy person, I still am, I'm kind of an introvert, and so I didn't draw attention to it for many years. And so I just, uh, I just pretended like I could smell. Um, and if you pay attention, it's pretty easy. You know, <laughs> people say, that smells good. You're like, it does. <laughs> oh, that smells really bad. Oh man, get that away from me. You know, it's not, it's not hard to pretend. Um, so. But it wasn't until I think I was in junior high or high school that I decided to reveal the fact to my brothers that I actually didn't have a sense of smell. And of course they didn't believe me because I had been so good at pretending. 
for many years, and um, my, my parents are medical doctors, and they had this clinic. Like, my brothers really did not believe me, and there was this medicine cabinet that just, I guess, really reeked. And so they had me stand in there and take the biggest, like, the deepest breath I could, and they were just blown away, like, wow, you really don't have a sense of smell. Um, so if you know of this, it's called anosmia. So I've, I've never had a sense of smell, um, and that's really what it's called, which is kind of funny. Um, um, and I don't know, I feel whole, you know? Like I don't feel like I'm missing out, like my experience has been my experience my whole life. People always wonder, like, can I taste? And I think, yeah, I can taste, but you know, I'm probably not as well as somebody who has a sense of smell. But um, um, I feel whole. Um, um, but I do, don't get me wrong. Like I do wonder what it's like to smell. Like I don't know what it smells like, what poop smells like in a hot tub, <laughs> or or <laughs> or a wet dog, or freshly baked bread. You know, like I don't know what's for dinner until I see it, or somebody tells me. You know, it's like things like that where. Um, I guess, like, appreciate it, you know? Like, don't take it for granted because, and I love to hear what things smell like. So if you ever see me and something smells good, just tell me all about it because I would love to hear about it. Right, thank you. Oh my goodness, that's one of the things I, so love about being involved with this event is I had never thought about a kid who doesn't smell and that experience of like not realizing it and that it was maybe something that was going to be taught in school. Um, and uh, I'm showing poor form here because we don't comment on people's stories, but also uh, it was so interesting for me to track my own thoughts when Jean was telling the story. I thought, oh, now we're going to hear how she got, how she got smell. And she didn't. <laughs> and that's something I hadn't thought about either. Oh, <laughs> you just don't smell. Okay. All right. So now I know when I see Jean, I'm going to come up with all my smell descriptors. Uh, let's get, let's smell that, uh, slammer hat over here for another slammer. I felt bad last oh oh there it is <laughs> last month i we had not enough time for many many story slams and there were so many people who had put in so i'm happy that tonight we get to put a few more in here comes susan with our hat looks like we have no more smells of boise we covered that so that's good all right next up is john england John, oh, gasp in the front row. Oh, there he is. Come on up, John. This is your soundtrack. You're coming over the rainbow. Visualize it. I guess the rainbow smells like, smells like rain. Here you go, five minutes. Hi, everybody. <clears throat> Well, Gene told the story that I was going to tell. Unfortunately, I thought I'd be one of the only people that 
suffered from anosmia in here. Um, public speaking is uh, a little nervous. I'm, I've never done this before, but I have been to Story Story Night about six times. Uh, my first one was at the penitentiary, and the theme was escape. And it was so incredible. They had a, a, a featured speaker. He was a, a uh, professor of art and traveled all around the world. And he, he taught me something very important about smartphones and how they do. You may remember, Jamie, uh, they track you. <laughs> and um, he told us about the significant locations and how to shut it off. Anyways. Um, I've been in, in Boise area for about 30 years, moved up here to finish school at BSU, and I lived in Meridian. And when the wind blows east, you can smell that sugar beet factory, which uh, maybe can be sweet. Uh, the one gentleman really liked the smell of sugar beets and potatoes, but it was odd to me. Another thing is I used to travel. I'm in a band called Bread and Circus. Um, we've, we've been together for 10 years, local band, and we travel around. And we play down in Twin and Southeast Idaho a lot. And if you've ever driven through Jerome, <laughs> about 10, 15 miles this side of Twin Falls, there's a lot of cow pastures out there. And it's, it's very stinky. We used to call it Jeroma. <laughs> uh, at one point, I'm going to share a little bit about anosmia. I suffer from the same thing. I cannot smell. It's not something that I was born with. Uh, it happened from some head trauma. One time we were playing in a city that was not the safest place in the world where this club was. And we, I was out in the alley loading up my gear and uh, there were some roughnecks and some drunk people out there and I was attacked and hit in the head. And I, I was knocked out and when I fell to the ground, my skull hit the ground. And about a week later, I noticed I could not smell and I went to the doctor to see what was going on. And what they told me is that you, you have a skull cavity and your brain is inside of it. When I hit the ground, my brain was slammed back to the back side of my skull and they said it, it damaged the nerve endings going into my nose. And asked if it would ever come back. They gave me a test called the Philadelphia Smell Test. And it is a scientific test to determine whether or not you really do not have a sense of smell. It's a little booklet, uh, multiple choice, scratch and sniff. You can scratch like a pineapple smell and there's three or four choices. And I took, did that test and it turns out I do suffer from anosmia, spelled a-N-O-S-M-I-A, but pronounced anosmia. And I could, uh, I've tested myself a lot. 
uh, work in construction around gasoline and diesel, I could have a gasoline tank, put my nose right up to it, and I cannot smell anymore. It's, and, and I tell people, and they say, how, how do you lose one of your five senses? And I'd explain it was from head trauma. Um, there is a way to practice getting it back. Uh, you can, you, you have to try to smell things every day. And like Jean said, you have to pretend or I can, because I used to smell before, I can think about what manure or gasoline smells like or perfume, shampoo, and things like that. Uh, so my smell has come back a little bit. Uh, as I said, I was hoping I may be one of the only people that suffers from this, but apparently we have some other people. Um, and that's about it. Thank you so much. Okay, how many people here have anosmia? <laughs> oh, a couple people did raise their hand, I think. Now we've had both kinds. We've had congenital anosmia and we've had trauma anosmia. Um, quite amazing. We're gonna have another story slammer so you can bring that hat over if you would. I did actually try to uh, reach out to the sugar beet factory uh, and find a story from the sugar beet factory. And we had a person, but they'd retired and moved away, but the essence of their story was that that smell to them that so many of us find kind of disagreeable, for them it was the scent of their father because they had worked at the sugar beet factory for generations. And that would have been interesting to hear about. I don't know if this person worked at the sugar beet factory or not, but we'll hear about it. It's May Cops. Yes, May Cops. the music to just go on. Um, so I do have a sense of smell. I have a pretty decent sense of smell. And um, <clears throat> when I think about sense memories, like a lot of people have brought up some really lovely memories. And it, it makes me wonder um, about the kind of person I am, because I just think of the stinkiest things that I can remember that I'll never forget. And uh, one of them, I lived for five years in southeast Alaska, which is in the rainforest. A lot of people don't know that. The, the Tongass National Rainforest is the largest rainforest in North America, and it's in southeast Alaska. And most of those are island towns, and that's where I lived. And I went there. I was being courted by a gentleman and went there. And on our first day there, he took me um, to have a picnic by the stream. And the salmon were spawning, which basically means salmon are really rad creatures. They, they are born into natal streams. They swim out into the ocean for a number of years, and then they come back um, where they were born to die, which is very smelly. And so if you're trying to court a loved one, um, don't take them at spawning time to the salmon stream. I was like, what is that smell? And he was like, oh, it's, you know, you could see these um, fish bodies still gyrating in the water and then lots of spawned out uh, red salmon that were kind of you know, turning into pink and dying. And that was my first bad scent memory in Alaska. And then I have had many others um, because it's by the water and water can be very, uh, very, very smelly. I lived on a, on a tide flat 
um, in a little red cabin. It was very quaint. There's lots of photos of it. If you Google Petersburg, Alaska, you will probably see these three red cabins on the shoreline by the harbor, and that was where I lived. And it was a lovely spot. I got to see amazing birds, and sometimes you would see whales. One morning I woke up and there were two swans with their eight swan babies just hanging out at high tide when the tide comes up almost to sort of like lick the corner of the house. It was really rad. But when the tide goes out, it smells absolutely disgusting. And the eagles and the ravens come and they eat the dead fish and critters. But the worst smell that I ever smelled in Alaska was not a, a natural smell per se. I was in the grocery store. We don't have chain stores there. So there were two local grocery stores you could shop at. And everyone had their, their preferences. I mean, much like any place about which store they would go to. And um, one I wouldn't shop at because I thought it smelled like, um, it smelled like dead things. The, the smell of the, the butcher was the predominant smell in that, in that space. And my, my boyfriend at the time said that. He said, you know, it smells like stale blood, but the prices are good. Um, <laughs> So you could go there, and mostly I would go to the, the store up the hill. It was called Hammer and Wecon, locally owned little chain. They also owned a, a hardware store in town. And I went there um, one day, and it was kind of known as the more sort of posh uh, store to shop at. They had a very tiny organic food section that was um, put in about when I moved there about seven years ago. Um, so that was like the, everyone was like, oh, you shop at Hammer and Wecon. Um, I get my organic produce, and then I went to the meat department this one day, and I, I got some chicken. That's like, I grew up in the Midwest, and chicken is a staple protein in my house. And you run into all kinds of characters in um, a Southeast Alaskan town. The, the primary um, industry there is commercial fishing. And everyone kind of who fishes has sort of a uniform of uh, work pants and extra tough boots, those brown boots that you've probably seen, sturdy rain boots that they wear on the boats. And people, you know, some people live on their boats, not all people have showers. And so, you, you know, you smell people um, pretty, pretty vividly sometimes in the summer. And there was an old man um, next to me shopping in the, in the meat department. And I thought, oh my God, that guy has not had a shower in ages. And I was like gagging. It was really, really a tremendously bad smell. And we kind of walked together toward, you know, how there's sort of a, um, a known route in each grocery store. And we were walking on that same route together toward the checkout station. And I was like, I have got to get away from this man. This smell is so bad. And um, it just smelled like death. I don't even know how, uh, people who could describe smells to these people who can't smell, uh, bravo to you. I don't have that many words except gross. And um, so eventually I kind of uh, part ways with this guy and I'm still smelling the smell and I'm like, oh my gosh, is it on me now? Like what has happened here? And I get to the, the, the checkout station and I know most of the checkers, it's a really small town, there's like 3,000 people, you know, and it's, it's uh, always embarrassing because they know your food habits when I show up and I'm like, I'm just getting my Ben and Jerry's, you know, that's, um, they're like, oh, here she is again. Um, but yeah, so I went there and I had, I had my, my healthy foods this time and um, she's checking me out and she, she scans the chicken and she gets this look on her face, like the death look of uh, this is what you know, this is the smell that I'd been smelling, but I didn't realize it was in my own cart. It was the chicken, and the chicken was like two weeks past expired. So it was like this disgusting chicken smell. And then I realized that man probably thought, <laughs> this woman has just been walking around the store. She looks decent, but she is unkempt and she should not be allowed here. 
Um, and then the, the cashier said to me, did you still want to buy this? And I said, no, thank you. Um, and and um, got, a different, got a different chicken and uh, forever will remember that you should be careful how you judge people. May is one of our volunteers, um, so thank you for that too. And if you would like to be a volunteer in the future, there is also a sheet on the Story Slam booth you can sign up to be a volunteer. Uh, Alaska, oh. Well, when I first came back to Boise, I ran a steampunk coffee and tea bike on the green belt for two or three years. And uh, really, it was just a lot of summer reading. But uh, people would come up and talk to me I did have the smell of coffee in my fingers, which that was a great smell. Uh, but the two conversations I had the most, well, the beginning sentence was either when I lived in Alaska or when I was in prison. <laughs> Can I get that slammer hat for one last slammer, please? All right, we got some people rooting for, for their name to be, well, their friend's name to be picked. Yeah, I always wondered why there's so many people come to Boise from Alaska, and also why so many people are in prison. Okay. How about we finish the night with Stephanie Alexander? Oh, that was the one, okay. Mike was going to have to go down. Darn it. <laughs> um, my name is Stephanie Alexander. And um, one thing that you need to know about me as I start this story is that I am the fourth of six. I am the fourth daughter of six girls. So being a middle child, um, me and my, my other sister, the one that was the third, we ended up sharing a room for most of our uh, young years. And we kind of did everything together. And we're growing up in the, the 80s. And we spent a lot of time outside doing typical things that 80 kids did in the 80s. You know, we'd make our little dirt tacos and we'd ride our little bikes on our cul-de-sac. And um, we loved to be outside and that was our main thing. Um, but because the two of us and, um, were just those middle girls and maybe, maybe paid a little less attention to, little middle child syndrome here, <laughs> um, we were kind of always getting into our own little shenanigans. And my parents um, like to come up with some kind of creative punishments, I guess you could say. Um, I remember at many dinner times, uh, my, my mom didn't, I don't know what it was. She must have thought that we were laughing at her. But if we started laughing at the dinner table, she automatically wanted to shut that down. Um, so that was one of her big things. And one of their creative solutions was to send my sister and I, as we start giggling at the dinner table, to the garage. And that happened a few times. And um, we'd have to eat our dinner in the garage while the rest of the family was sitting around the dinner table. And we were kind of miserable. We didn't, we didn't like that very much. But finally, our older sisters, the two older ones, finally came and said, what in the world? That's like the best punishment ever. We're like, what are you talking about? <laughs> Nobody wants to go sit in the cold garage. That's not very fun. They're like, all the best stuff is in the garage. That's when we're like, oh, aha. <laughs> You're right. Because what's in the garage? We've got our bikes. We've got our roller skates. 
we bought the freezer chest <laughs> with the ice cream. <laughs> so it didn't take too long after that before we started enjoying our, our garage escapades where we were, you know, riding around on our bikes and if we could hear our mom or dad coming to check in on us, we'd try to drop it and sadly start eating our dinner. <laughs> um, but we also had our shenanigans at night. Uh, we would, we shared a bunk bed and we would, after it was bedtime, we were put to bed by our parents and said our prayers and, and uh, had our kisses goodnight. When that door shut, we would jump off the bed and we'd try to do a little dance, make sure, you know, my dad would typically come back in again after he'd said goodnight to some of my other sisters. And so we knew we were all just kind of, you know, tempting, to, tempting the fate to see if we'd get caught. <laughs> um, but I, my, my sister and I just did a lot together because of that situation of us being um, in the same room. And I remember one day, it was raining, so we didn't get the chance that day to go outside and play. Um, my sister actually got to go to, her name is Shauna. Shauna had gotten the chance to go to a friend's birthday party. And I think at this time I'm about four years old. And I was kind of jealous because a lot of times we're close enough in age that we'd typically be at the birthday party together. And so I was kind of sad that it's raining, I can't go outside, my sister's not there to play with, and she's at a birthday party. But she came home and she was excited and she had a great time and she came home with this little bag for her, her party favor and uh, it looked like a little circus bag and it had peanuts in it. And um, she thought she was being the great older sister and I kind of worshipped her, you know, four years old and she was like five and a half, six. Um, so I thought everything she did was just amazing, you know, she could train ants. I don't know if you knew this, but you know, she could train ants. If she wanted to make them crawl over her finger, she could make them crawl over her finger. <laughs> Things like that really impressed me. So she brings home this bag of peanuts, super excited, and, uh, and she said, it's okay, Stephanie, we can play, we can play elephants. I've got these, um, I've got these, these peanuts. I think that's my own alarm, sorry. <laughs> um, She's like, we can play elephants with it. And I was like, oh, how do you play elephants? And so she taught me how to play elephants. You know, you do a little trick. So some of our tricks that we're, you know, playing were to, um, you know, stand up just on two feet, you know, or to, to try to balance on a ball. I think we actually pulled out one of those little bouncy balls and pretended like we were balancing on it. And of course, if you do a good job, if you're a circus elephant, you do a good job and do a good trick, you gotta get a reward so you get your peanuts. So after we did a couple tricks, it was time to eat the peanuts. And she lays these peanuts out on the floor. We actually cracked them open because they were the, the shelled peanuts. She cracks them open and then we just had the, the peanuts left over. And she said, now it's time to eat our peanuts. And she goes, you gotta do, you know, pretend like you got a little bit of a trunk and uh, go and get your peanuts. And uh, uh, <laughs> she said, you can't use your hands. <laughs> and so I'm watching her. And I'm kind of peeking out of my eye, and I see that she's, she's gotten some somehow, and she's chewing them. And I don't understand. I get down, and I'm trying to kind of sniff up these, these peanuts um, very unsuccessfully. <laughs> um, and I kept trying, and I kept looking over at her, and she would have peanuts in her mouth, and she was chewing them and enjoying this great thing. And I wanted to enjoy her peanuts. I didn't get to go to the party. <laughs> um, so I get down really close, really close. And I'm sniffing, and I'm sniffing, and I did it. <laughs> I, I sniffed, but I didn't get it in my mouth. <laughs> I sniffed that peanut up, <laughs> and uh, 
Unfortunately, a little bit embarrassed initially, tried to get it out myself. I think I dislodged it even further. Um, we spent a good time. I think my mom came, my dad came. I mean, everybody tried to help me get this peanut out of my nose. And um, <laughs> luckily for me, my grandma, who lives in Canada, comes down and visits for about a month every year. And she happened to be in town, and so she was the last one to come come and help. It's been a half hour at this point, thinking, I think it was too late for us to go to the doctor. It would have been like an ER visit at this point in time. My grandma comes in, and I don't, I don't know, she's got some miracle fingers, but she d is able to get that peanut out of my nose after some, some um, finagling. So the big lesson here is there might not be a wrong way to eat a Reese's, but there is a wrong way to eat a peanut. <laughs> Thank you for listening. If you'd like to see the storytellers in addition to hearing them, this entire show is available on the Story Story Night YouTube channel. Support this podcast by texting STORYPOD to 44321. Story Story Night is funded in part by the Idaho Commission on the Arts and the National Endowment for the Arts. Thank you to our media sponsor, Radio Boise, and our season sponsor, The Chandro Group. Podcast production is by Stephen Baldessari. Our theme song was composed by Dan Costello. You can rate and review this show on Apple Podcasts. Please subscribe to Story Story Night on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you download your podcast. Have a story? Call the storyline at 208-917-1970 and leave a message, or click the Stories tab on our website. Find out how to participate in our live show at storystorynight.org or visit us on Facebook. I'm Jody Eichelberger. Thanks for being a part of our story.